Hi there, I'm Margaret. Join me for a deep dive into the life of a freelancer. I share my clients' struggles and successes and celebrate those moments that make it oh so worth it. This is Freelance Freedom. Welcome to the episode all about where to start. I wanted to do this episode so we could start where everyone does, the beginning. There are so many amazing podcasts out there about freelance, entrepreneurship, and owning a business. I'm so happy you've decided to spend your precious time with me. Many of these podcasts are amazing, and I listen to them myself. But a lot of these podcasts that exist advise you on the present. The whole premise is that they assume you've already started and are knees deep in your business. But what if you're just starting? Now I'm talking, you've never had a client, you may still be at or just left your job, or decided to pick up a side hustle. Where do you start? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll be going over some questions like how to find your first clients, which I talk about in another episode. Do you need a website? How do you write proposals? How to communicate in general with your clients? A lot of those questions. Do you need a contract? Do you need a lawyer? Do you need an accountant? What do all these things cost? Now, some of these questions are pretty involved, and we'll get to those in future episodes, I swear. But let's just drop the top 20 questions that I get from people when they first start out. And this applies to so many freelance areas. I speak from my own experience as a developer, but it applies to almost every freelance field, whether it be photographer or detective or designer or developer, and the list goes on. So let's dive in. This will be a semi-rapid-fire question-and-answer session about basically how to get started. All those little questions that you don't know to ask until they come up. This will also likely be my most resource-rich episode, so don't forget to go to the website, check out the episode, How to Start, and we'll get all your resources lined up for you. Okay, here goes. 20 semi-rapid-fire questions of how to get started in freelance. I'll also preface this by saying that certain questions will need episodes all to their own. I'm not trying to dodge any questions from you, but I'll give a slightly abridged version of the answer and we'll dive into it in more depth in a future episode. So let's dig in countdown style. Number one, or should I say number 20? Should I name my business my own name? Or should I create a new company name for it? This is the question of the ages. And there is no real right answer, but I will try to guide you towards the right direction. Basically, if you want to build your own brand, it's in your best interest to have your name or some variation of your name in it. If you want to become an expert in one area, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're pigeonholed in that area. You you can also move to adjacent fields as well. I would suggest starting with your name. The benefits to using your name are that you'll become identifiable. You can build the know, like, and trust factor a lot better. But the issue is, or the downfall, is that if you use your name, you can't really sell the company in the future. Now, maybe you can if it's sort of some variation of your last name. And I mean, I'll I'll use the example of Gary Vaynerchuk. He's very prominent in his own personal brand, but he, of course, still owns VaynerMedia. Now, VaynerMedia is clearly his because it's an iteration of his and his brother's last name. But it's far enough away from his personal brand that he could sell the company if he wanted to. So you have to think about long-term when you're making these decisions. Is it an entity that lives outside of yourself that you want to build up and potentially sell one day? If that's the case, I would lean away from making your name. However, if you want to build 
an intimate, dedicated audience that down the line you can bring your expertise into adjacent fields, then I would totally go with your name. Regardless, always get your domain name in your name if you can, like the .com or .ca or whichever applies to your field. I know that's kind of a non-answer, but it totally depends on the business. I personally like to build my websites under the company name because there's a small team that builds them. But for the podcast, because it's just me and you talking, we're going to go under my personal name. So it's up to you to decide what works for you. 19, do you need to incorporate sole proprietorship, LLC, partnership? So again, this depends on the business. Let's say that you're a single person doing freelance, you're starting off and it's just you. It's probably not in your best interest to incorporate or create a partnership with someone else. And you'll likely just be starting off as the equivalent of a sole proprietor. There's a lot of reasons for this. One of them is it's kind of expensive to register a company. And if you want to register an incorporation and name yourself as president and CEO, you can totally do that. And there's benefits. One of them being that the company is a separate entity outside yourself. So you can't be liable for the things that happen within the company. Now there's gray areas there as well too, but it can be an expensive process and straight out of the gate, it's not totally necessary. Also, as a sole proprietorship, you can literally start today. All you have to do is register a business number. And I know in Canada, it's free to register a business number as a sole proprietor. I think it is in the US too, but I'll amend it with some show notes once I grab some resources for that. But as a sole proprietorship, you can register a business number and literally start today. It does cost you money if you want to register your name, but you can operate under the number no problem. And it gets incorporated into your taxes that you're already paying. And it's a lot cheaper year after year from an accounting perspective. So if you're just starting out, I would suggest sole proprietorship unless it's a highly liable company then you can look into things like corporation. However, these are my experiences, so definitely speak to an accountant or a lawyer to get their two cents. Number 18, do I need a website with a portfolio? Not necessarily. I would say even to this day, all of my clients come from word of mouth and they don't necessarily even look at my portfolio. So I would say as long as you're active in the community, as long as you have some work to show people, presuming that you've worked on some side projects ahead of time and you have a skill that you're good at that you can in some way present to people, you don't need a full-fledged portfolio. A lot of the times when you're in contact with the client, instead of going through your online portfolio, you can send them a couple pieces of your work. And if that work isn't online, you can send them photos, whether that's photographs if you're a photographer, or you can send them JPEGs if you're a designer, or you can send them to live sites if you're a developer as well. So you don't need a whole online portfolio. And to be honest, most of my clients don't even look at my portfolio. And I, to be perfectly honest, have not updated it in a long time. And I still get consistent flow of clients. So I would say don't stress about it. Really focus on getting to know your core clients and then as you build up your portfolio, you can start to showcase some case studies, share them on social media, and that'll help get the ball rolling. But don't corner yourself into thinking that you need a full-fledged portfolio before you start getting clients. Number 17, do I charge my clients tax straight away? So this depends where you live. And I would probably speak to an accountant, but I can speak generally in Canada and in somewhat in the U.S., now, this will vary probably state to state and province to province, but 
you typically need to make about $30,000 plus to really need to pay taxes. So this means you don't need to go and register your tax numbers right away. You can test the waters with freelance first without making that commitment. But there is a plus side with charging people tax. So just because you don't have to charge tax doesn't mean you shouldn't. I would personally suggest registering your tax numbers because when you go to invoice clients, if you're not charging them tax, then they basically know how much you're making. So to make yourself look more professional, I would definitely register all your tax information and start charging tax right off the bat. The other benefit to that is you can start writing things off. Now, what that actually means, which is not what most people think it means, (laughs) what that means is that anything that you purchase that's business related becomes tax deductible. Now, that's something that we're going to talk about in a totally other episode where I'm going to bring my accountant Susan on and we're going to have a really in-depth talk about taxes because that is all of the biggest questions that we get. So I would say you definitely don't have to register all your tax information, but I would say yes to do it. It makes you look a little bit more professional and you can write things off in your business, track more expenses that way as well. Number 16, do I need a contract and what should it say? So technically, do you need a full-fledged contract? I mean, yes, but should you go out, spend $1,500, $2,000 on legal fees before you even start, especially when you're charging maybe just a few hundred dollars straight off the bat? Likely not. There's a lot of resources online where you can get some pretty basic contracts. Now, the one thing that you want to check is, is that contract binding in your area? So the country and the state that you're living in, can you use that contract? And there's a few things that you want to make sure it has in it. You want to make sure that the scope of the contract is clear. You want to make sure that the payment schedule is laid out. You want to set the expectations of who the assets belong to when the project's finished and deliverables are sent. And you also want to make sure that the contract includes a clause of what happens if something goes wrong. Now, in a lot of contracts, it's pretty commonplace to say that you would need to go to mediation before it goes to litigation. So you can talk to a lawyer and hopefully we'll have one on to talk about that a little bit further. But basically what that means is that if there's any kind of dispute, you would go through a mediation process before people start suing each other, which is the best way to go. Number 15. What does a proposal look like and what should it include? So this is an episode all on its own, but I'll try to give you a little bit of a breakdown here. So as far as a proposal, what format should it be in? It's probably one of the biggest questions I get. Can you type up a Word document and send it to someone? Can you send them off a Google Doc? Do you need to make up a really extravagant PDF? There's so many proposal softwares out there. Do you need to use one of those? So I would say when you're first starting off, it's totally acceptable to use Google Docs. There is version control in Google Docs. You can keep them all in one place. You can easily edit them and resend them if you need to. And they can also communicate through that as well. So they can ask questions through the Google Doc. They can highlight certain sentences. You can answer through that as well. And it keeps a paper trail. So if you're just starting out, it's free software. Everyone knows how to use a Google Doc. In the long run, should you go to proposal software or a really fancy PDF? Well, yeah, to get more cohesive with your branding, for sure. But when you're just starting out, you're still finding your footing, and it's totally reasonable to accept something in a Google Doc. You can style it up to make sure the headers look good, include some colors in there, even some photos or even videos as well, too, would be great. 
but at least we know Google Docs. We can open them on all the devices and everyone knows how to use them. So I would definitely start there. We can talk about proposals, what's involved in the minutiae, as well as different proposal softwares in the future. And maybe I'll even have some templates up my sleeve for you. But in the meantime, there's a few components that you'll want to make sure it includes. An introduction to the project. You'll want to make sure it breaks down the phases of the project. So what's included in each phase? Is everything being done in an initial phase? Is it broken off into two phases? How long are those phases? And then, of course, you want to have the price components at the bottom, too. You want to include different terms, like how long the proposal is valid for and what the payment schedule is. Those are sort of all the basics to go into a proposal. But of course, there's room for you to spruce it up with some testimonials and case studies and things like that. So we'll definitely go into that in a lot more detail. Number 14, do I need project management software? If so, which one? There's so many project management softwares out there, and I've tried most of them. We're probably going to do an episode all just on project management softwares. But again, this episode's all about starting out and you want to keep it simple. So if you're just starting out, I totally recommend using Google Docs. It's free. Everyone knows how to use it. It's a great collaboration tool and has a really low learning curve. So dive into Google Docs, create a folder in the folder. Definitely have your proposal, contract, spreadsheet with a timeline and share these, and then you're off to the races. Those are probably the biggest three components that you would have. Create a subfolder so the client can start uploading their images and assets to that. Create another folder so the the client can start uploading their copy there. And that folder can grow and grow, but it's something that's shared between you and you can annotate and you can make changes in real time. Number 13, what do I charge? This is Maybe not even one episode. Maybe this is a series. Maybe this is a season. But there's so many answers to that question. I would say the short answer right now, because again, we're just starting out. Do some research in your field. Who are your competitors? What are they charging? That's the first thing that you want to do. So you want to get a good idea of what people are willing to pay. Because there's a couple things that could happen. You could price yourself too low and then start attracting clients that are not your ideal clients. Or you can price yourself too high and find yourself that you're out of work, especially if you're still starting out. If your prices are quite high, even though your work could be amazing, you don't have a ton of history to back that up. So finding what to charge can be a little bit of a growing process. There's two ways you can do it. You can charge per project or you can charge per hour. I would suggest in the long term, definitely charging per project. But if you're just starting off, it's really hard to wrap your head around how big projects are until you dive into that. And that goes for any freelancer as well. We're not just talking development and design, although I know how crazy scope creep can get in those. But we're also talking about every other one. If you're a private detective, if you're a photographer, you have no idea the things that could possibly come up if you're just starting out. So what I usually recommend for new people is in your first few projects, gauge the hours Add about 30 or 40% because things always take longer than they do. Come to an hourly wage that you're comfortable with. And then that's how you get the proposed amount. Now, do you have to break it down to your client that you're charging hourly? No, you can scope everything out as a project, come up with your numbers on the side and include that as the full cost. So you can present it as though it's being value priced, which is basically what charging per project is doing. But On your end, you're breaking it down by the hour to get a good idea of what you should be charging. Now, is that sustainable for the long term? Not really, but you need to get the experience. You need to get your feet wet to be able to know 
what you can charge in the long run. Because it only takes a few times to say like, oh, this was actually a lot simpler than I thought, or this actually took a lot longer, which is more the case than anything else, to be honest. And I should start charging this much more. Also, talk to some people in your industry. Find some people who have been doing it a while. Reach out to me. I'd be happy to give my two cents. But remember, it's not a race to the bottom. Whatever you do, undercutting the people around you and charging less than them doesn't do anyone any favors in the long run. Number 12, how do I get referrals or testimonials for my future clients? Well, you ask them. I know it's weird or awkward and it can be at first. It definitely gets easier over time. There are certain things that don't and we'll talk about those later. But asking for referrals and testimonials definitely gets easier over time. What my preferred method is to do, and I know a lot of other people go the route of sending someone an email and straight out asking for them, which is great and a lot of times that works. But I tend to ask them verbally towards the end of their agreement. Hey, how was everything for you? How was it paced out? How was my communication? And given their feedback, as soon as they start saying these great things about you, then you say, hey, that's amazing. I'd love other people to have the same experience as you. Do you mind putting that in writing? I'd love to use it on my site. And I feel like having that verbal conversation is so much more natural to me than sending someone an email asking for a testimonial afterwards. So there's ways that you can work that into conversation by asking them for feedback. And as soon as they give you that feedback, we're asking them what was, what are two things I can improve upon and maybe two things that were amazing. And then of course, take note of the things that you can improve upon because that's just going to make other people's experiences better. But the things that they said were amazing, ask them if you can put them in writing and people forget all the time. So don't hesitate to follow up with an email within a couple of days to remind them to do that. Number 11, what happens when a project goes south? Well, this is not pleasant when it does happen, but it does. Such is the life of freelance and entrepreneurship. So what do you do? Well, basically, you make your best efforts to remedy the situation. Going back to the other point about contracts, it was all about mediation and all about fixing the issue before it got to something drastic. For example, have you ever been in a restaurant and your food's taking so long to get to the table, but you're looking and your waiter or waitress is nowhere in sight? That's the worst possible thing that can happen. There's been other times where I'm waiting forever for my food too, and the server comes over periodically and says, hey, we're keeping updating your food, or something was lost in the kitchen, or somebody dropped something, but we're staying on top of it, and they're proactive about it. That can solve the issue way before it even happens. So if you see something that's happening with clients, the worst thing that you could possibly do is disappear or ignore it or pretend it didn't happen. If you see something, even if it's small, bring it up to them, nip it in the bud, even if it's a vibe, even if it's something that you're like, oh, I I showed them this and they were like, oh yeah, like I like it, but but you weren't really convinced, dig in there and ask them, well, What can we do to make it better? What if we did this and offer some alternatives in real time? That can be a lifesaver. And it saved my butt so many times. It's been such a rare occasion that projects have completely gone south because you have to nip it in the bud. And knock on wood, in the last 10 years, I've never had a client not pay. I've been surrounded by a lot of other freelancers and heard horror stories about clients withholding funds and getting to a point where they have to go to court, you need to nip it in the bud before it gets there. 
All right. That was my rant. So number 10, how do I invoice and collect payments? So there's so many options out there. 10 years ago, there was not this many options. And I remember when I first started, I had to sign up to Moneris, you know, those handheld machines. And they had this like weird online payment, but we also had to do it over the phone. Oh, it was so bad. There are so many options now. You can ask them for an e-transfer if they live if they live close to you, I think doing it across country country and possibly even state and province lines can get a little funky sometimes. But an e-transfer, there's no fees on either side for that. So that's probably your best bet. A check, an old school check if you want to wait. I often have clients that live close to me send a check. It's something I get within two or three days. I know it's old school, but again, there's no fees on either side for that. The other ones, there's fees associated with them. But in my opinion, it's the cost of doing business. There are a lot of people who put credit card fees on their invoices, and I do not believe in that because it's the cost of doing business. When you go to a restaurant and when you or when you go to Lululemon or when you go to Home Hardware and you use a debit or a credit card, do they add on fees? No, it looks unprofessional, in my opinion, when people add on transaction fees. So make sure you're quoting projects with the fees in mind, knowing that if they pay via credit card, you'll likely have to pay those out of pocket. Usually it's around 3% of the transaction. So to get paid on credit card, you can set up an account with PayPal and or Stripe. I have accounts with both, or you can use any number of invoicing software. I really like FreshBooks. You can accept credit cards through the invoicing software. It's very straightforward. There's a few other ones like Zero is good, mostly for American though. Um, QuickBooks is good, especially for Canadians. Harvest is also really good as well. FreshBooks and Free Agent is another one too. So some of them have different plans that come with different prices. If you don't want to use any invoicing software, you also don't have to. If you're just starting out, you can literally Google or go on to Microsoft Word Any of these word processing programs will definitely have templates for this too. I think Google Docs also has templates for invoicing and you can just handwrite it, save it as a PDF and send it off to them and let them know where they can send the check to, have any taxes that are included there. If you've registered your business number, you need to include your business number for tax purposes on the invoice, have yours and their full addresses on it, an invoice number so you can reference it later if you need to. And the way they can pay you, an address they can send a check to, a link that they can go to PayPal or elsewhere to send you the money. But there's so many options these days. I would say, again, you can get overwhelmed with the options. So if you're just starting out, get a template for Google Docs, use it in there. Then you can also save the invoices in Google Docs too, and they'll have those as a quick reference in your shared folder. Number nine, we're more than halfway. Are you guys still with me? We're more than halfway. (laughs) Number nine. How do I find well-paying clients? Well, I'm so glad you asked. The episode just before this one is how to find clients. And I know it's going to sound like I dodged this question, but there's a 40-minute episode telling you guys all the amazing ways. There's like 20 ways to find clients. Well, I think there's 10. And then there's a bunch of stuff that you should do to avoid getting bad clients as well. So go check out that episode. It's literally called How to Find Clients. And that's my answer to number nine. I'm sorry, it's not longer, (laughs) but it is. It's longer in the episode. Number eight, what's the difference between a proposal, a contract, and an invoice? All right, so I'm going to break it down. 
And you need all three is the other part of that question. So they come in phases. First of all, they're all three different documents. However, you can combine a proposal and a contract together if you like. It could become quite long. I like to keep them separate because it clearly differentiates that they're, that they're speaking to two different things for the client. The proposal scopes out the project, both timeline, costs, and deliverables. So you can both agree on those. And the contract is basically your terms of service of working with you in general. Those can get combined together. So you can have your proposal inside your contract. So when they sign the contract, they're signing off on everything. What I usually do is have my proposal outside my contract and then I reference the proposal. That also works too. So you can do that one of those two ways. An invoice is different. An invoice is what you use to ask for payment. So your first invoice would be asking for your first set of payment, second invoice, when that time rolls around, final invoice, and so on. So those are three different items, but the two can be combined together, the contract and the proposal. The proposal doesn't necessarily need a signature, but the contract does. The contract saying that you understand the terms of service and that's what you agree to, and it should reference the proposal if not have the entire proposal in it. But the initial proposal isn't necessarily an agreement, it's your offering. So that's the difference between those ones. Hope that clears it up for you. In the long run, you'll probably need all three. But when you're just starting out, get a really basic contract, throw the proposal in there. You can make it all one document, get it signed off on. And there's a lot of digital signature companies out there like HelloSign, DocuSign. There's a ton of them out there as well, too. And then the invoice doesn't get sent at the same time as the proposal and contract get sent shortly after before you start your engagement. Number seven, what is a niche and do I need to specialize? Yes, that's the answer. (laughs) So first of all, what is a niche? A niche is a specialty. A niche is something that you're good at that differentiates you from everyone else. It's a narrow, narrower group of people that you serve. Why is it good to serve a niche? We're going to do an episode all about niching on its own, but If you're really good at something, it's better than being okay at a lot of things. And here's an example of what a niche is. Say I wanted to install a pool in my backyard. Well, I can go to any pool company and ask for a pool installed. But if I specifically want a saltwater pool, I'm sure a ton of companies out there would say, oh yeah, no problem. We can do that. We can install a saltwater pool. No problem. But then I find one company that only installs saltwater pools. We specialize in saltwater. There's very specific pumps that you need for it. There's very specific treatment. There's a certain way you need to open and close your pool once a year that's different from chlorinated and brominated pools. That's what we specialize in. Who would I get my pool put in by? The people who specialize. And would those people likely charge a lot more money? Yes, So that's how it works when you're in a niche. You can hone in on something, become a master of that area and charge more for that. Those are the benefits of having a niche, but we're going to talk a lot more about it in another episode. I think the biggest question that comes up when people are asking about niches is, well, will I alienate potential customers and drive them away? Yes, but you'll get to have fewer customers, the ones that you want, that want your specific set of skills and you get to charge more money for it. So that's the trade-off. And it's amazing trade-off. Trust me, it's worth niching down. Number six, do I need to run ads to promote myself? No. So this goes back to the question about how do you get clients? And I'm going to refer to the other episode again, 
because we go through a ton of ways that you don't have to spend any money to get clients. And to be honest, you ask anyone who's a successful freelancer in the long run, all of that's going to be through word of mouth and you won't need to advertise. Number five, what should I have in place to look like a professional? This one's interesting because there isn't a specific answer for it, but I'm going to try to give a few general items that can make you look a little bit more polished when you're just starting off in freelance. So the top things to go through to look professional might sound obvious, but go through your Instagram and your Facebook feed and make sure there's nothing incriminating. It seems obvious, but you'd be surprised. The other thing is to go through your LinkedIn profile and start updating your skill sets. If you can get other people to start vouching for your new skill sets, that would be great, as well as putting yourself as a freelance or small business owner as one of your occupations as well, too, could help out a lot. But getting your skill sets up there, deleting anything incriminating or at least hiding it, locking down your profile if you need to, and uh, and clearing out that Instagram and Twitter as well. Those are probably the biggest things that can make you look professional. Also, be aware of your profile photographs. Anyone who knows you in your immediate circle will already know who you are. So that doesn't matter as much. But when new prospects come to check you out and they look you up online, some of these photos are going to be the first ones that they see, these profile photos. So just make sure that it's the right image that you want to portray as a small business owner, as a freelance professional. Number four, we're almost there. We're almost there, guys. Number four, should I or do I have to work for free? So This one can be a bit polarizing, and this is where some of my unpopular opinions rear their heads. I think you should work for free. I think you should work for free, but I will put a caveat in there by saying that if you love the project and if you are invested and interested in it, by all means, and you can put your heart into it, work for free. Do not take free jobs just because you think it will be good for your portfolio. If something looks interesting, if it looks like a challenge, you can do it for free or a discounted rate if you want to, but we'll get into rates a bit later as well. Also, if you hate it, you probably shouldn't be doing it at all. But definitely, if you're not interested in a project, don't take it on for free. This also bleeds into the next question when it comes to friends and family. If I want to offer my services, then how I how do I respond to family and friends that want it for a quote-unquote deal? So, I'm going to answer these two questions together. My philosophy for this one is if you're invested in a project, if you love what they're up to, if you are totally behind it, then you can do it for free. Even at this point in my career, I still do some pro bono work, which just means basically free work, if it's a cause that I'm really invested in. So my opinions about this are, should you do free or discounted work? Yes, if it's something that you really have your heart on, or if you think that you could create a a really great experience for someone or a really great end product that you'd be super proud of. In those cases, I have and still do take on some projects for free. Now, that being said, I don't discount any rates. So I know it's an interesting paradox. So I either charge full price for everyone or I do it for free on my own terms. And I think that's really important to differentiate. I don't do anything for a discount because every time, and you'll hear this from everyone who's ever offered a discount, anytime you offer someone a discount, they become your most high maintenance clients and you generally can't get rid of them. And they expect all the work you do from now on for them and their friends to be discounted. So that's why I stay away from discounted work. However, 
I find that work done for free or for pro bono has a bit of a different dynamic than discounted. And I might be the only one thinking this, but I've noticed in my experience, if I offer to take something on pro bono, people are usually a lot more appreciative and they do have respect for your time, not as much as people that are paying full price. But if it's something you're really passionate about, you can generally look past that. However, I find that people, when you do something for a discount, so you charge them, but you charge them a lot less than you normally would, then your work is taken for granted. I don't know the psychology behind that dynamic. It's really interesting. I'd love to look into it further. But in my experience and in the experience of a lot of people around me, you can do things pro bono for free on your own terms or you charge full price. But no discounts. No discounts is the rule. Number two, how do clients typically pay? Do they pay for everything up front? And what does a payment schedule look like? So this depends on the project too, but I'll give you some rough guidelines. If something's under, if it's under a thousand bucks, usually I'll do the work and then I, everything gets signed off on. I invoice them and then they pay. And I've never had an issue with that. If the work's two, I'd say like two to seven thousand, in that case, uh, I split it into two payments. So we'll do 50% upfront that holds their space in line. A lot of times I can't take on people right away. So the deposit will hold their space in my timeline. So they'll do 50% upfront. That'll hold their space. The other 50% on completion. Now on larger projects that are 10, 15, 20,000 and more, we split it up to three and at a maximum of four payments. So it's either done monthly because you typically products won't take any more than three to four months. So we can split it up monthly or we can tie it to a deliverable. Those two usually work out about the same. So whether I'm splitting it into three or four payments, whether they pay them monthly or whether it's tied to a deliverable. And what I mean when I say tied to a deliverable is basically saying that I give you this product and then you give me the money. So it's tied to the delivery of the product as opposed to tied to a timeline. So mine are tied to deliverables, but they line up with the timeline generally anyways of about once a month. So you can do yours either way. There's arguments for both. I feel more comfortable tying mine to deliverables. I've also been on the receiving end as a client with projects being tied to deliverables, which I liked that experience because I received something and then I paid for it or something tied to a timeline. And I did not like that experience. I didn't like the experience of handing over money and inevitably their end of the project would get delayed and they would have all my money and they'd still two months later not have the final product for me. So that's why I tie them to deliverables and everybody has their own opinion of this. That's mine. You take it for what it's worth, but it works out really well for me. And I find in timelines, I'm actually really good at maintaining timelines. So depending on how you are in maintaining timelines, payments spread out on a timeline basis or a deliverable basis should be pretty similar. So number one, we're here. We're here. Number one is when does a project end? Do you have to offer packages afterwards? And what do you offer for support? kind of a three-part question, but I'm going to try to take it all on at once. So when does a project end? Technically, from a development standpoint, a project ends when the site goes live. When the final product goes live on launch, that's when the project itself ends. And then I always offer 
usually between 14 to 30 days, depending on the scope of the project, 14 to 30 days of support after it. And then after that, they're on their own. Now, that being said, when the project is launched, they get a full package, which we'll go into afterwards. We'll go into exit and entrance packages in a whole other episode, which are amazing. I love them. But basically, when they leave, they get screenshot and video documentation about how to update absolutely everything on their site themselves. They also get all the logins. So we're talking hosting and domains and um, CRMs, which is like email communication platforms uh, and all of that. So those get securely transferred to them as well. So they have all of those. I've come across so many scenarios where those never get handed over to the clients and the clients come to me as a new, as a new developer for them and they don't have any of these assets. You, if there's developers listening, you have to give these over to your clients at the end. These don't belong to you. They belong to the clients. So make sure they have everything they need if they decide to go elsewhere or God forbid, if anything happened to you, they need that information. So all of that gets handed over to them for the launch. And then from there, depending on the contract, they get 14 to 30 days of support afterwards. And then after that, they have the ability to purchase packages. Or if it's someone I don't want to continue to work with on a long-term basis or vice versa, I mean, things happen, priorities change, then I'll be able to refer them to someone else who does maintenance packages. So that's where the networking is going to come in handy too. Every developer is going to have their niche. I know I'm speaking to developers, but you can extrapolate this to different industries as well. Every developer is going to have their niche where they specialize. And you can just specialize in maintenance packages. A lot of people, when they finish a project, don't necessarily want to offer that. So you can swoop in, which would be a, a great idea if that's what you love, you can swoop in to people who are, you know, are good developers, you know, the site was built on a solid foundation, come in and your whole bread and butter could be maintenance packages. And there's not a ton of people that do that. So I think it's a really good, it's a really good place to put yourself, especially as a new developer, you'll be a pro in no time because you'll come across so many weird and wonderful challenges. (laughs) So that's it. That's all of them. There's so many more. There's so many more questions, which we're going to get to in future episodes. But that's it for today. That's your 20 questions. Now, I'd love to take the conversation over to social, see what you guys think. What are the top questions that you have? Or is there any other answers that you can give any other insight? I'm happy to take those conversations outside of the podcast as well. And we could probably do more episodes on these questions and just keep piling them up. But more than anything, I want to open up the conversation. So what do you think? What are your biggest challenges? What are some challenges that I talked about? What are some of my unpopular opinions that you disagree with? Let's talk about it. Hit me up on social. You guys hear all the handles at the end. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. As always, I love to keep the conversation going. So head over to Twitter or Instagram at Margaret Fell. That's at M-A-R-G-R-E-F-F-E-L-L and tag me or slide into my DMs with any questions you may have. You can also find me at my home base of margrafell.com for all the resources. I'll see you next time.